This afternoon, I preach you the Word of God as we read it in the seventh commandment, and as we confess it in Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism. The seventh commandment is, God, uh, is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall not commit adultery. And then in Lord's Day 41, the church confesses, what does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives, both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God made us so that we could live together in harmony and unity. He gave us emotions that make it possible for us to form true and lasting relationships with other people. He made every man and every woman different so that we can work together to fulfill our creational mandate or mission to work to have families, and to worship Him in everything that we do. Relationships are an important part of serving the Lord, and sincere friends help us to faithfully love and serve God and our neighbor. In His wisdom, God ordained it that some friendships between men and women grow so close that a man and a woman enter into the covenant of marriage and become joined as one flesh. These couples are able to fulfill the part of the creational mandate given to the church to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Their commitment to one another and their cooperation in their task ensures a safe place for the children that God may give to them to grow up in. The church grows through faithful families And the family serves as a foundation in the place wherever God has set his church. It's not hard to see why God's enemies are focused on destroying friendships and families by corrupting the temples of the Holy Spirit with unchaste and selfish desires. We give thanks to the Lord that he graciously points us back to the right direction to true happiness by commanding us not to commit adultery. As our Lord Jesus explains this commandment further in the Sermon on the Mount, he shows us that ultimately God's command reveals to us what kind of attitude the Holy Spirit works into the hearts of the citizens of God's kingdom. The good news for us who are caught in sin against the seventh commandment, that sin that ruins all our relationships, and not to mention our self-esteem, is that God, the Holy Spirit, can change our desires. He can 
create new longings in our heart, open our eyes to see things as He made them. And He makes us sincerely desire the good gifts that God has given to us. The gospel message I proclaim to you today is that in Christ we can have a new life and that by His Spirit, citizens of the kingdom of heaven live chaste and disciplined lives. The Holy Spirit leads us to remove the root of adultery and secondly to respect the bond of marriage. The common Jewish interpretation of the seventh commandment in Jesus' day was limited to the act of committing adultery, which is sexual intimacy that takes place outside the bond of marriage. Intimate physical connections to other people require a level of vulnerability and trust that comes with strong mental and emotional bonds. And it's extremely damaging and and harmful to a person's entire well-being to get physically close to someone and then leave them because then you betray their trust, you violate their privacy, you undermine their dignity. The Jews were certainly right then to point out the danger of the act of committing adultery. But as Jesus points out, their interpretation failed to deal with the heart of sin sin against the seventh commandment. The word that the Lord used in in the seventh commandment for adultery doesn't just speak about physical contact, but of anything that might become a wedge between the two people that God brings together in marriage. And as such, our Lord Jesus points out the root of adultery is found in our hearts, in the way that we see marriage, in the way that we look at other people. Our Lord makes it clear that the definition of adultery includes more than just physical bonding outside the marriage relationship. Similar to what we saw in Jesus' teaching about the sixth commandment, the claim, but I didn't touch him or her, will not stand, is evidence that you haven't committed adultery when you are presenting before the great judge of heaven and earth. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we see then why we confess that adultery includes, and the list is in our confession, all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Our Lord Jesus commands us not to just look at a person's outward appearance as if they were inanimate objects without any purpose besides satisfying our own sinful craving. But he tells us to look at other people as entire beings made up with a heart and with character and, and with desires. In the scriptures, when the Lord describes people, he rarely mentions their physical appearance. And he never tells us what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like on the outside in terms of their physical appearance because the Lord is concerned with the heart, with the attitude, with the character of a person. Our over-focus on outward beauty that often leads us to lustful thoughts 
reveals just how deeply our sinful nature has affected our hearts and how close we sometimes are to living and thinking like mere animals. The battle that the Holy Spirit is waging against our sinful nature to lead us to chaste and disciplined lives begins in our minds, in our hearts. The Holy Spirit shows us that everyone is created in the image of God. That was the display text as we were walking in today. Everyone is created with the call to glorify Him, no matter what their physical appearance may be. And the Holy Spirit shows the citizens of the kingdom of heaven who have been renewed by God's grace that they have a place in the work of God. When we begin to understand that, that people are not given to us as objects to use as we see fit, then we will begin to treat others as equally noble creatures of God Most High. People who either need to hear and learn about the work of Christ that gives access to the kingdom of heaven, or they are already wearing the bright and pure linen of the righteousness that God grants to everyone who believes in him. When we keep in step with the Holy Spirit and we imitate the love of Christ, we don't ask how another person's physical body can serve us, but we ask how can we serve that entire person to bring them closer to their Heavenly Father. It's the nature of every relationship that we have as members of the body of Christ. To remove the root of adultery, the Holy Spirit helps our hearts to be content with all that we already have in the Lord our God. There's a close connection between the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and the tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. As the Father doesn't need us in order to exist himself, so he has richly blessed every one of us in Jesus Christ so that we can live a full and complete life of service to him even if we never get married. Rather than seek to earn contentment through marriage, citizens of the kingdom of heaven are equipped by God to enter into marriage uh, into the marriage con content in the knowledge that we already are temples of the Holy Spirit, that God already dwells within our hearts, that He is guiding us, that He is comforting us, that He remains with us forever. We are never alone. And the more content we become, the less covetous we become. The less needy and desperate we feel, the more capable we are of serving our neighbor in love. When we enter in relationships to serve others and to share God's grace to us through our love to them, then although it may thrive better when the self-sacrificial cooperation is mutual, the relationship between two people and our happiness doesn't depend on what we are getting out of the relationship personally. May God help us to be content in our situation, to see 
other people as brothers and sisters created by God to serve him as obedient children. And may we see that we ourselves are called to serve others, to help them with respect and the honor that we show to brothers and sisters in our own family. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 verse 2 that to treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. Then if God should call us to the task and responsibility, someday we will be ready for a marriage that pleases the Lord. We begin content as we enter in to further relationships. Finally, the Holy Spirit helps us to remove the root of adultery by putting the fighting spirit into our hearts. Jesus tells us that our very eternal life is at stake in this battle for purity and that it is better to lose one of the members of your body in the struggle against selfish, leering looks with lustful intent than to, lose, than to have your whole body go into hell. Keeping in step with the Spirit brings us into an all-out battle against our own bodies and, and the sinful desires of our own bodies. Our Lord tells us that if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Is your right hand causing you to sin? Cut it off and throw it away. It's obvious that our Lord Jesus is using a figure of speech because not only does he not condone self-mutilation, but also because removing one eye or one hand won't stop you from seeing or touching. He means, however, that if something as dear to you as your very own right eye or your right hand actually is causing you to flee away from your calling to glorify God, if that dear thing to you is, is causing you to deny your Lord Jesus Christ, to resist the Holy Spirit as he is working to purify you. He says, if that dear thing is doing those things, just get rid of it. Jesus understood our addictions and our bad habits. And he teaches us how to create new pathways in our brain that keep in step with the Spirit. He urges us then to identify the triggers in our life, to work together with, with others. We can't do it by ourselves. to starve the desires of our sinful nature. If it's causing you to lust, stop looking at it. Stop paying attention to those movies or to those books. Stop going to the worldly so-called meat markets. Get rid of your phone. Give up your proud privacy that only entraps you into your lust even more. Change your daily schedule. Change your job if you have to. And then fill in the vacuum with activities that draw you nearer to God and nearer to your neighbor in love. Fill your life with conversations, accountability. Fill your life with service. Fill your life with the enjoyment of creation and devotions and, and prayer. With these words, Jesus makes it very clear that we can't just wish our lust away, but that even once we understand that God loves us 
that his son died to pay for our sins, that his spirit dwells within our hearts. We have not yet conquered just by having this understanding, but we are merely armed for the battle that we must continue to fight against the sinful desires of our fallen nature. May God help each one of us who hungers and thirsts for that fullness of the experience of the kingdom of heaven when all our relationships will be kingdom-focused rather than me-focused. May he help us to radically cut down the weeds of sin at the root so that we may humble ourselves before God's gracious purposes and respect the bond of marriage. The seventh commandment is given in the context of that existing relationship between God and his church, in which God and his son Jesus Christ are called the bridegroom, and we as his people are called the bride. Form for Lord's Supper, we even speak of being flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. In his grace, God allows us to have a foretaste of that amazing, self-sacrificial, and undeserved love of Jesus Christ by describing the marriage bond in his word, both before and after the fall into sin, so that both the married and the unmarried can find joy in the promises of Christ's work. In that context, there's a deep sadness in seeing the Pharisees direct their questions to the Son of God, whom the Father sent as the bridegroom for a church, the the Son of God, whom he sent to die, to purify his bride. Here was Jesus giving his life for his bride, in spite of his bride's adultery and shortcomings, giving his life to purify her, to make her his own forever. And the people that he came to save were asking questions to see what they could get away with in terms of marital unfaithfulness. Here they came ensuring that the escape clause in their marriage contracts would not be overly onerous. The situation had gotten so bad that they were treating divorce as something normal and acceptable in God's sight. And they believed that they were showing their piety in obeying the command to give the wife they sent away the proper paperwork. It sounded good to say something like, well, you know, when you send your wife away, make sure you treat her honorably and give her a certificate that confirms that she doesn't deserve death for adultery so that at least she can marry someone else. In that context, our Lord Jesus' teaching is focused on those who casually introduce their teaching by saying, when you send your wife away. What do you mean by saying, whoever divorces his wife, as if divorce is a normal thing that doesn't include sins against all the other commandments surrounding it, like honoring God's name, keeping our vows, not killing by hatred and contempt, not twisting the truth, not coveting a different life in our discontentment. We see, as our Lord Jesus is teaching, that any divorce is a very sad thing 
It's the result of, of a lot of brokenness. And although our creeds and our confessions don't speak about it at all, and it's only mentioned in the form for the solemnization of marriage, we do well to pay attention to our Lord's teaching and the Sermon on the Mount about how we must respect the bond of marriage. The Lord Jesus tackles the problem of this casual attitude toward marriage by explaining that Deuteronomy 24 is not so much about the certificate of divorce as it is about the principle that the consequences of a marriage continue on even after a person is divorced. Dissolving a marriage that isn't broken in God's sight, whether or not there is a legal certificate, is like sending someone you have harmed by your sin out of your life without ever seeking reconciliation. The unfinished business becomes more outstanding and disturbing when you have made promises to love and cherish the other person, which that person counted on when they entrusted their hearts, their body, their time into the mutual responsibility of the relationship. Jesus wants his followers to distinguish themselves from the Pharisees and their casual attitude about divorce by considering how the negligence of a husband or wife during the marriage relates to their responsibility for the, the other person even after the relationship has dissolved. And he speaks of that in, in verse 32. The interesting point that Jesus makes is that the husband who sends his wife away simply because he is displeased with her can, in a sense, be considered to have made the other person commit adultery, especially in a setting where a divorced woman could not even manage to survive on her own without the economic support of a husband. Let me see the, the big picture. Not only are people guilty of adultery when they look at another woman or man with lustful intent, but also when they cause other people to commit adultery by sending them away with a certificate of divorce when they should still be seeking reconciliation. Finally, Jesus also shows how any new relationships that are formed with a divorced person who still has the rep responsibility to reconcile cause both the divorced person and the third party to commit adultery because they are driving a wedge between a man and a woman who should be seeking reconciliation. And as our Lord numbers the different ways that the seventh commandment can be broken, even by people who think they are obeying the Lord's command in Deuteronomy 24 and giving the person they're sending away a certificate of divorce, we see how much the Lord who instituted marriage continues to respect the marriage bond. He honors the marriage bond. The one exception that Jesus touches on in the Sermon on the Mount has been the subject of much scrutiny. By mentioning an exception, Jesus teaches us that the marriage bond of one flesh is not absolutely unbreakable. When Jesus said, except on the ground of sexual immorality, he is explaining how we should apply the Hebrew expression that we read in Deuteronomy 24, some indecency. 
Although we can read about another exception in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, for cases when an unbelieving husband or wife abandons her Christian spouse, in our text, the Lord teaches that if a husband or wife is unfaithful to their spouse, their immorality breaks the one flesh bond of marriage. Since Jesus taught in Matthew 19, verse 8, that in the case of sexual immorality, God doesn't command divorce, but only permits it, it's now up to the injured person to decide whether or not a meaningful relationship can be built up again through the process of confession and repentance and forgiveness. Just like any one of us might decide to marry a person who has been unchaste in the past. The Lord Jesus doesn't say there's never any hope. When we understand that people who have been divorced by husbands or wife, wives who were unfaithful to them, that they're no longer bound to their marriage vows in the sight of God, that makes us think very carefully about the consequences and the cost of being unfaithful, of being adulterous. It also makes us very gracious and supportive to those who have been harmed in this way, have then had that bond broken. God calls us to respect the bond of marriage, both before, during, and even after marriage. And since the marriage commitment in that big context is really a commitment to serve the other person, We don't enter into marriage to be served by the other person, but we enter the marriage relationship to serve the other one. Then the only time that we become free of that responsibility to the person we marry is when the other person is no longer there to be served. For example, if they've died or if they've disappeared. And the other way we cannot serve the other person, they abandon us and break the bond with adultery. And thus, our Lord Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot more that has been said about the meaning of adultery and the consequence of the sin for the bond of marriage. It seems, if you're reading up on it, it seems like every year there is a new prophet declaring that everybody before them has always interpreted everything wrong. And that the original language actually means this or, or that. And they'll say, well, Jesus must have meant this rather than that. Or that the church is either overly bent on always seeking reconciliation or the church is too easygoing about separation and divorce. However, rather than be sucked into that focus on the nature of the certificate of divorce, Our Lord Jesus lifts our hearts and minds up to what marriage is. However, rather than being motivated and over-focused on the question about when a person can legitimately be set free from the responsibilities they took on themselves when they got married, how they should go about this, and what the consequences will be for them after divorce, The Holy Spirit, through our Lord Jesus' teaching, lifts our hearts up to the blessing of marriage. You see that in Matthew 19, he says, Look at marriage as a gift that God has given to us. See 
how he has given it to us to enrich us. See its place in the church. See how the Lord is promoting marriage and protecting it. Although it's not something everyone will experience in this life, the relationship between a husband and a wife serves as a constant illustration of Christ's self-sacrificial love and his headship, which will be celebrated by his church at the marriage feast of the Lamb that we are eagerly anticipating when Christ returns. In the marriage of the Lamb described in Revelation 19, the Lamb is a reference to the Son of God who died on a cross as a sacrifice for everyone who believes in him. And the bride are those who have been made clean by his sacrifice, who who made herself ready by clothing herself with bright, pure, fine linen of righteousness. That is the church. We walk in the purity that Christ obtained for us by dying on a cross for our sins. That's the picture of marriage that we should have in our minds as we await that day when we too will will come down the aisle from heaven to earth that has been made new. We read about that in Revelation 21 with that picture of that relationship between Christ and his church, the love of God for each one of us. We need to ask ourselves the question, will our, will our persistence in our sins of lust and, and selfishness, that persistence that caused so much damage to relationships on the earth, will that insistence prevent us from being present there with the robes of righteousness that Christ gives to all who submit to him? Well, the good news that Christ offers is that his blood is sufficient to cover over all our sins, even sins against the seventh commandment that so intimately involve our own bodies. The promise of the gospel that the Holy Spirit who is dwelling within our hearts will continue to lead us by His Word to constantly desire chaste and disciplined lives, no matter what we've done before. He guides us to see others as entire beings, to cut off all the sin that entangles. And He calls us, brothers and sisters, to live as citizens of this kingdom in the grace of God already now, forgiven by Jesus Christ, renewed by the Holy Spirit to truly love God and to love our neighbor, to give our lives, our bodies, our souls, our minds in service to others in all purity. The Bible begins and it ends with a description of marriage. And the two marriages are founded on the marriage of Christ to his church. Since he loved us unconditionally, he came to serve rather than to be served. Let us now also, as the bride of Christ, love one another from the heart. May God help us to remove the selfish root 
of adultery right out of our hearts, to, to rip that out and throw it away, and to live our lives in service to others, whether they're husbands or wives or friends or colleagues, and to respect the bond of marriage. Amen.